Hey, thanks so much for gathering with us in this way. Uh, this way certainly is not what we have been normally used to uh, for seasons up until this time. I know I personally take solace in knowing that though this particular physical gathering I enter into on, on Sunday mornings to worship with my family, though that is incredibly different than what I've ever experienced in church before, it's no less part of the church. And it's no less valuable to Jesus. Wherever we are and however we are lifting up the name of Jesus, God still runs to us. You know, meeting in the Fehrenbach living room as a family has its challenges to be sure. Uh, but with every awkward and uh, uncomfortable action of worship, I believe we are fashioning a root system that goes deeper, uh, forcing ourselves not to settle for the familiar. Uh, and let's be honest, this season is anything but familiar. And we worship a God who doesn't seem to need or even be drawn to the familiar. You know, along those lines, we sent out a communication yesterday about Life Church's course of action for the remaining months and what we're going to do with Sunday gatherings. After much prayer and conversation, the elder team has determined that we will innovate to our scriptural roots of small groups. And so Life Church, for the rest of 2020, will gather by meeting from house to house. Uh, people will gather wherever they feel comfortable in terms of homes or apartments or, or coffee shop terraces. To draw from Justin's message last week, new times require we embrace old truths. The book of Acts shows us as the early church is birthed that they leaned into meeting from house to house. The early church found its footing in such a way and followers of Jesus have found fruitfulness in this precious dynamic even in times of diaspora, persecution, and even in just the normal routine of life. And to be clear, we are not in any of those times. The church is not being persecuted. This is certainly not normal. And though we are more physically distanced than we've been before, this is not a diaspora in the classic historical sense. There's no uh, tyrannical fist of a despot attempting to crush a people or a belief. I say all of that because in this moment that we share together, our society is extremely flammable. And I don't want to ignite any further tinderbox of divisive and deconstructive finger-pointing, yelling, name-calling, or vitriol into our existence. This is simply where we all are. This is where we are together. And this innovation that we're going to lean into for the last few months to our scriptural roots, which is what the elder team has prayed into and, and talked about for weeks, uh, we believe it is the healthiest, surest, most flexible way to unabated growth and connection for us with God and with others. We believe this biblical prescription fits our present season. Now, let me be clear. We are not declaring that this decision is the best decision. We're not suggesting that this decision that we are making is the right decision. We are not making this determination with sideways glances at other churches or faith organizations or communities of any way, shape, or form in comparison to their decisions. This is our decision. There are a number of details better read than heard regarding this course of action. These small groups that we're calling community groups. 
Real life is going to be investing in community groups as well. So please make sure that you read that email. If you didn't get the email, check your spam folder, your spam box, whatever. And if you didn't get it, please reach out to us, info at lifechurchvirginia.com, and we will connect you to that information. If you have any questions or wonderings, please reach out to us in that email. We'd love to communicate with you in this season. Uh, This week and next, we're going to just focus on a couple of psalms. Because I've found over the course of my life, and particularly in this season, the Psalms to be a place where I can really lean into the presence of God, be self-aware of who I am, where I am, and offer myself to God so He can draw me up out of the pit of miry clay, as the psalmist writes. So we're going to look at Psalm 62 this week. We're going to look at Psalm 46 next week, but let's just pray. Father, we thank you so much again for the ability to gather in this way. And we just simply invite your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us to truth. Mold us, shape us, make us more into your image. And so as we offer you these moments, God, in the context of all of our moments, we just ask that we would hear your voice loud and clear. We love you, we honor you, and just again ask that you'd mold us, shape us, and make us more into your image as you have intended, in Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. You know, the scriptures are an incredibly miraculous tool that heal us, that that refine us, that offer change to us in very real and applicable ways. In no uncertain terms, they resurrect our souls by God's Spirit. But much like any other tool, uh, like a hammer or a screwdriver or a power tool, you need to know how to use that tool in the right way. I can't tell you how many times I've taken a hammer up to do a job and realized midway through, I need a, I need a screwdriver too. And it would be much easier for me to walk down the stairs and get a screwdriver, but I just figure I figure I can use this hammer in the way that the screwdriver would work. And next thing you know, I'm banging it or trying to work it out. I'm frustrated. I really want to throw the hammer through the window out wherever it's going to go. And we do that sometimes with the scripture. Rather than understanding how we use it, we end up wanting to throw the whole thing out because honestly, we're using it the wrong way. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3, there's a familiar passage of Scripture that people will turn to or, or use as they often use Scripture wrongly. It writes this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. What people often do is they say yes, and they start using the word as a tool, as an instructive piece to teach, and it's always outward focused, to instruct the other person, to correct the other person, to bring reproof to the other person. But the context of even that scripture, just a couple of verses up, says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't speak into one another's lives, but I am suggesting the scriptures are for our reproof, are for our teaching, are for our healing before they are for anybody else's. We say it this way at Life Church: Don't just read the scriptures, but we have to let the scriptures read us. 
there's a right application of taking the word and teaching it and applying it, not just to everyone out there, but first and foremost to our own heart and soul. We see this emphatically worked out in the life and the ministry of Jesus himself. He is not just God and and prophet. He is the word made flesh. And Jesus handles himself with others with love, with mercy. He extends grace. He listens to people. He doesn't just shout at them reproof and teaching and correction. It's incredible when you stop and think that Jesus knew the Pharisees and the Sadducees were out to kill him, to murder him. And Jesus met them with mercy. He listened. He engaged in conversation. And how often do we just throw reproof, throw instruction, throw teaching out, rather than handling the scripture the way that God handles it in the person of Jesus? The whole of scriptures mingled with manifest presence of God's Spirit, can and will offer insight to your soul, to my soul, to every soul on the planet. And the Psalms are unique within that because they are written personally, they are written honestly, they are written practically, and they are written emotionally. The Psalms provide us a window and a door. They provide us a window into feelings. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I read the Psalms, I don't just read how somebody else is feeling, but it almost gives me license and opportunity to allow myself to feel that way as well. They offer us a window into how we're really feeling. And they offer us also a doorway out of just those feelings and into how God would offer us to walk and carry ourselves. This is why oftentimes when I read the Psalms in my devotional times or my quiet times, I'll find a space and I'll read the Psalms out loud. I wouldn't suggest doing this in your cubicle at work or somewhere that other people are around. You might seem crazy, but when I read the Psalms out loud to myself, it engages so much more of me. I'm reading it. I'm speaking it. I'm hearing it. And those extra layers of involving myself in the Psalms, again, they ignite me. They show me who I really am. And they offer me those doorways I mentioned into what God has. Now, when you speak of the scriptures and how they are speaking into us, there's this obvious tension, another word for it. There's an obvious tension created or concentrated on through the scriptures. It's the tension of God and others with us at the point of fulcrum. How do we relate to God? How do we relate to others? And we see this too as the the rulers of the law come and ask Jesus and they say, hey, what's the most important thing? What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says in Mark chapter 12, hey, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that you love your neighbors as yourselves. Relate to God rightly, relate to others rightly. This, of course, isn't the only place in scriptures that we see this. It's also in Exodus 20. As the nation of Israel is being taken out of bondage and brought into freedom, God says, hey, make sure that you relate to me rightly, the first section of the Ten Commandments, and make sure that you relate to one another rightly, the second section of the Ten Commandments. And we see Jesus drill down on the Ten Commandments even further in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are all about how do you relate to God? How do you relate to others? 
And it's not a new thing. We see it in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as God is dealing with Adam and Eve and how they relate to him and his presence and his promises and his purposes and how they relate to one another, honestly or not. And the Psalms tackle that very same tension, how we relate to God and how we relate to others, but from a very different angle. And so we're going to look at Psalm 62 this week. This psalm, the author is David, and many others are written by him as well. The audience is, honestly, it's himself and the atmosphere, what is going on. He's being engaged with an environment of trees, and he's being betrayed by others. It's just not a good circumstance. I think many of us can relate to that in some form or facet of our lives. And the affairs of this psalm are simply David assessing himself, David exploring where he is himself. So let's work through Psalm 62. We're just going to go through the sections. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. David writes, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Are these words a determined reality? God is my rock, my fortress, I shall not be greatly moved. Are they a determined reality in David's life? Or are they a declaration towards hopeful aspiration? I want God to be my rock. I want God to be my sustenance. I think we get the answer as we read on, but there is emphatically a a striking central player to these first two verses, this self-assessment and self-exploration. And it's not David. It's God. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock, my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Other versions say, I will not be greatly moved. There is centrality to David's heartfelt beginning is God. God alone. Verses 3 and 4 are confronting of the current affairs. So David opens up with a centralizing dynamic of God in his life, and then he confronts his reality. Verses three and four, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall and a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but they inwardly curse. That which David is speaking to, these aren't his friends who are bringing instruction or perspective, nor are they mentors speaking into or offering language that would shape and adjust his life. These are treasonous, betrayal-ridden voices bent on breaking him down and hurting him. These are the people that David is struggling with. How long will you attack me like a leaning wall and a tottering fence? These people only exist to pull him down, to break him from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood or lying. They bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly. As we relate this to our circumstances, David is dealing and confronting that which is confronting him. He's being honest with what those voices are trying to do to him. They're trying to tear. They're trying to break Now, 
I am not suggesting that every voice in your life that is negative towards you, that is adjusting towards you, is evil. In fact, if you don't have somebody, if you don't have somebody who speaks into your life in a confrontational way, meaning they disagree with you, meaning they say you're wrong, meaning they say you should change or grow up, I would suggest that you are in a dangerous place. We need to have voices that shape us, but if there are people speaking negatively to us, if there are people speaking correction to us, it's important that we understand, are they really for me? Are they trying to secure what God has for me, or are they trying to really break me down? Are they trying to just hurt me? And David is coming and dealing with that honestly in these verses. Verses 5 through 7. Whenever the Bible repeats itself, we should take note. We should alert ourselves to the repetition in scriptures because themes, when they're boldened, should embolden us to live a certain way. And verses 5, 6, and 7 are a repetition of verses 1 and 2. David writes, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, more emphatic, for my hope is from him. He only, previously it was, he was my rock, but now it says, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. It was, I shall not be greatly shaken. But now, after David is walking through this process of thinking and feeling and praying, he's making the determination, no, I will not be shaken. I will not be moved. Verse 7, he adds this, On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. I love the fact that we can have a progression. Where you are is not where you have to stay. Where you are hoping doesn't have to stay that small. There's a progression for David that he would not be greatly shaken. And just a few verses later, he says, I will not be shaken. We are allowed to progress and move from where we are to more confidence, more expectation, and more hope that holds us in the midst of everything else. Verse 8, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust is one of those interesting things because it isn't like love or hope or joy. And it kind of gets thrown around in that. But trust is the only one that can be broken. Trust is the only one that has to be built up once it is broken. You cannot have stability without vulnerability. Let me say that again. You cannot have stability in your life unless you offer your vulnerability Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him and God will become a refuge. The statement of God being a refuge is so much more than poetic language. It's life perspective. Refuge is, yes, a place of safety. It's a place of retreat. But the refuge of the scriptures is also where you can have a home. It's where you're able to really have foundation. It is where you are allowed to then be fruitful once you have all those things in place. Pour out your heart before him. Because apparently you cannot have any of that which we want and desire without offering honesty, authenticity, and openness. 
Try and hold back from your friends and see how much of a connection you have. Next time you're engaging in a conversation with your spouse, maybe just maybe you can lean into trusting the goodwill of that person. And you might have reason to want to protect yourself, but you will not enjoy stability if you don't offer your vulnerability. Trust in him at all times. You people pour out your heart before him. God can only become a refuge if you pour out your heart to him. Verses 9 and 10. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. I love verses 9 and 10 because quite simply, David's making the point, make sure what is real to you is really real. What is real to you is really real. Because people who are rich or people who are poor or money that comes by this way or money that comes by that way, just make sure that which you give reality to in your life actually has the ability to sustain you and move with you into your future. And David closes by reaffirming God, just as he did in verses 1 and 2 and 5 through 7. He reaffirms God's presence. He reaffirms God's power. He reaffirms the fact that God is faithful and steadfast and that God has a pension not to be difficult, but to be fruitful. He writes, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. The Psalms are unique in their ability, again, to give us a window, to let us peer into how we truly are ourselves feeling, our circumstances. How are we dealing with them? How are we handling our current And they also grant us a doorway out of perhaps maybe some unhealthy dynamics, some mistrust or or fears that we're having. The Psalms will offer us these doorways, just like, I will not be greatly moved. No, I will not be moved. God, you are my steadfast. You are my rock, my refuge. They offer us doorways out into all that God has for us. As opportunity today, I want to ask a few questions. For what or for whom is your soul waiting? David declares that my soul waits for you, O God. You alone are my rock and my refuge. For what and for whom are you waiting? A more uncomfortable way to ask the same thing is, what or who are you positioning your happiness or your fulfillment around? Let's get really intimate, shall we? Is your happiness and fulfillment based on who gets elected in just a number of weeks? Is your happiness and fulfillment based on the level of time you have with that person or this person? Is is your level of happiness and fulfillment based on how much money you have in your bank account? I'm not suggesting that all of those things and more won't affect us and aren't part and parcel to who we are as humans. I'm just asking, is that what we should submit our souls to? Second question, you're going to love this one. It's better than the first. (laughs) Are you being honest in your handling of you or are you abdicating that creative space to someone or something else? Are you really thinking through who you are 
and where you are? Or are you so ingrained in what the news is saying, what media is reporting, or what you're looking at on social media that you don't have time to create your own thoughts? Have you abdicated your creativity and your own thought life to all of your devices and all those other voices that would be more than happy to tell you who you are? Thirdly, where's God? Where is God in the midst of all of this for you? In the person of Jesus, where is his voice in your life? I have a close friend of mine who years ago, as I was learning to really listen for the voice of God myself, Jeremy McGovern used to tell me, I've got this question I ask myself all the time, Christoph. When you have a thought, I ask myself, where is Jesus in the room when I have that thought? I always picture that quotation in my mind as I'm praying or thinking through things. And and oftentimes when I'm having a thought and it's more often than not negative towards myself or some circumstance, I picture Jesus in the corner of the room going, (laughs) where is Jesus in your personal day-to-day relationship as you're walking out circumstance and developing relationships and working through relationships? Where is the voice of God in your life. I want you to know that God wants to be in your midst. And if he's not, it isn't because he's moved. It's because we aren't listening. We're not making ourselves available to what he wants to have with us. Let me leave you all with this benediction. May we read the scriptures and therein let the scriptures read us. May the offered windows, when we look through them, and see ourselves usher us to the given doors leading to different, to new, to better in resurrection life that Christ has for us as we die to ourselves. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better. Hey, we love you so much. Thank you so much for joining with us. We'll see you next week.